Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Great pleasure to have you all with us again for another episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. And I'm excited to have another chat with Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. Phil, we're going to start with you today. Go ahead. Thanks, John. So this week I thought I would talk about the new book, Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment, that's uh, just been released. I think it was a couple of weeks ago now. We're recording this in late June. I think the book came out in June or maybe in May. Um, And it's, of course, by Danny Kahneman, uh, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, partially with the help of Jason Zweig. It's been about 10 years now that that book came out. And I think we've talked about it a few times on the podcast. It's it's funny. Uh, there was an article about two months ago now about how it's taken off in Major League Baseball and people are like handing it around, you know, general manager to general manager and whatnot. And it, it's become kind of like the new money ball amongst uh, sports analysts and GMs and Major League Baseball executives after 10 years, which is pretty funny. It's obviously not a new book, but I think it's one of the best books ever written on any subject. It does have tons of applicability to investing, even though it's not directly about investing. And Noise is a new effort kind of along those lines. Um, So Kahneman wrote it with a couple of co-authors, Olivier Saboni, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, and Cass Sunstein, two pretty well-known uh, academics, and they kind of shared the responsibility for writing this book. And the basic premise of it is that we get lots of attention on bias uh, and not enough attention on noise. And so the way he kind of they frame that up right away in the introduction is that if you think about shooting at a bullseye or playing darts, bias is that it occurs when all the darts land on one side, high or low, left or right. Like there's a consistent problem such that you're missing in the same general spot over and over again. So you could be a good marksman and just have a bad rifle would be the kind of way you'd stretch that analogy. And noise is something different. Noise is unwanted variability in decisions, right? So the the shots all miss the mark, but in a widely scattered way that's somewhat unpredictable. There's an inconsistency, right? And so if you can't consistently shoot the arrow or throw the dart in, in a way that you can predict, it's impossible, obviously, to be a good shot over time. And it is, of course, possible to be both biased and noisy. Um, but it, in investing, like the, the implications are, are pretty obvious, right? So to be biased would be to say, always overvalue or always undervalue certain businesses or all businesses, right? So you have this very consistent, very clear framework that's just wrong in one direction or one dimension. Whereas noise would be coming up with two widely divergent valuations for the same set of circumstances, right? And this is where I think it gets really interesting because I think as they show in the book, I mean, there's some amazing examples where, uh, um, you know, judges are are given the same set of, you know, information and documents. So there, there was actually a study with 1.5 million cases of judges passing down sentences in criminal justice cases where the 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 sentences were harsher the day after the local city's football team lost a game, right? So the the football team has nothing to do with the merits of the criminal justice case, um, but it really did seem to impact, you know, the the outcome, right? So that's noise, right? Because you get two widely varying outcomes under differing circumstances. 
and they found the same thing, by the way, with, you know, like time of day. So if like the judge is hungry right before lunch or sleepy right after lunch, whatever the case may be, right. There's just all sorts of problems here, um, that prop that crop up and in investing, like, it's pretty obvious, right? I mean, you could, you could have two analysts, if you were to be able to run them in parallel universes, you know, and you presented them the same company, the same opportunity set, the exact same analysis, and you had them issue a valuation or an investment write-up or a recommendation on a day when the market's just in free fall for one reason or another, or the market's going straight up for one reason or another, or you just happen to have listen to a really brilliant management presentation, or you've anchored to some really optimistic thing out there in the world, or you've had something really good or bad happen in your personal life, right? It's pretty easy to imagine those numbers diverging really widely. And that's the absolute last thing you want, right? And so in a somewhat related field, they actually did some really interesting studies with insurance underwriters, right? Where it's a relatively straightforward set of facts, and you could present the same case file to a whole bunch of different underwriters even within the same company, right? And they ought to be able to come up with a, a a premium that would be relatively consistent, right? Like you'd want that premium to say only vary by five or 10 or maybe 15% to allow for a little bit of the uncertainty and discretion. And instead they found that sometimes, a lot of times those numbers vary by 50% or 75% or a hundred percent. It's just this massive range that's too wide, right? It's just completely unacceptable. Um, so what they recommend are a couple of things, right? They recommend what's called a noise reduction decision hygiene kind of framework and a noise audit, right? So in a noise audit, you know, they look for a couple of different things. One would be occasion noise. And this is where, like I said, the judges would hand out stiffer sentences the day after the football team is lost. You have lower valuations on a day the market is down or something like that, right? The, the occasion is driving the noise. Or you could have system noise where the same facts will yield wide variation in judgment, right? So there's something about the environment you're operating in, right? Like your partner is always a perma bear, uh, or your partner is always too optimistic, or you know you're having some problem that's permeating the culture of the organization, and it just sort of creates this continuous amount of noise such that there's always too wide a range. I, I always think about it in the context of if you have an alpha male portfolio manager, we're all familiar with this type, right? And the kind who's always just kind of cutting you off and jumping to the conclusion before you can finish your thought, you know, that can create some pretty significant system noise because it's impossible to ever get through, um, you know, the same, to get to the right decision, you know, on the same framework, the same path without getting interrupted. M&A decisions, you know, suffer from this all the time, right? So to, to have a better set of decision hygiene is what they say. But this is one of the favorite things I do in my my MBA class. And we've talked a little bit about this before. We've done this before with John and Elliot and, and back with Chris uh, back in the day with blind valuations, right? Where we we lay out the facts and without giving you a chance to anchor on it, right? And without raising any of the psychological factors, because it's not your own money, it's not your client's money, it's just hypothetical. Say, what would you pay for this security or this business? Um, and it makes it makes a huge difference, right? And so I've actually played some fun games where I have presented students with the same company twice, but I just sort of cut a zero off and mess around with the numbers a little bit. So it's the exact same company. And it's amazing how wide the variation is between what they were willing to pay last week for this company versus this week when I do it back-to-back weeks in class. And that is pure noise, right? Because it's the same company Nothing's changed over the last week. It's literally the same numbers, just missing a zero or something. You ought to be able to come up with the same general answer you came up with last week, but you'd be shocked at how wide the range is. 
Um, so, you know, ways to counteract this, right? I mean, I, I've always said that you should try to do as much of the valuation work as you can without looking at the price first. Having a strictly ordered research and valuation process such that you start on the inside and work outward. You start with what the company is required to say, what the company is required to disclose in a standardized format under penalty of law, and then you work outward, right? And only at the very end do you go into like fluffy stuff like management presentations where they're telling you how great the company is and how much money they're going to make and or listening to other people that might be cheerleaders that have a vested interest in, in seeing the company do well. Um, another good practice, I think, is to make buy and sell decisions as far away from the market as you can. So I think sitting there watching your portfolio tick by tick and then entering buy and sell decisions on the same screen or on a neighboring screen is a pretty bad idea just because I think it can really get you overreacting to what's happening right then in the market, which really has nothing to do with what's going to happen to this investment if you're going to hold it, hold it for any period of time. So I think that's a pretty good way to do it. And one of the main things they recommend throughout the book is actually to just decompose your decisions into discrete pieces. So again, going back to the M&A analysis, you know, they, they talk pretty explicitly about, you know, just no no pitch books, no investment banking presentations, uh, you know, no no fluffy stuff that can get you excited about how great this is going to be. And so one CEO actually tasked executives into seven discrete aspects of the deal, the proposed deal. You know, one team would be looking at, you know, the talent and the people they'd be acquiring. One team would be looking at the strategic rationale and the assets they'd be acquiring. One team would be looking at the financial returns the deal might procure. One team would be looking at the risks and the integration problems and the cultural aspects and that sort of thing. And then he has each one of those teams report back separately. Right? So there's not one definitive answer here, but it gives you a more holistic picture of what you should be thinking about and what the good and the bad and the ugly are about all this, this deal could be. And then it avoids what, what they call in the book excessive coherence. Um, so you know, not to pick on on somebody, but it, it kind of reminds you of SoftBank, right? Where like everything is a rocket ship straight to the moon. And if you don't agree with Masason, you know, you, you probably don't have much of a voice at the table, right? That's excessive coherence. And by by chopping things up into more discrete aspects where the, this, the various components are, are more separated from each other and the reporting back and the evaluation of it is not all tied together is a really good way uh, to avoid that problem. You know, so an, a, a good example would be a lot of firms, I think, still use an investment committee um, where somebody comes in with a write-up or a memo recommendation and kind of pitches it to the other members. If you're really going to do that, I think you need to avoid having members know in advance what everyone else's conclusions are, particularly if there's a senior person on the team with a with more of a vote. And, and you don't go around the table and ask everybody, you know, what their decisions are so that, you know, if the guy next to you is really bright and has a good reputation, he says he hates the deal and you came in loving it, you're probably gonna switch or temper your your comments a little bit to all fall in line with what somebody else said and not get your real, you know, best thinking out there, your best valid thinking out there in advance. Um, one other really good trick that I liked in the book is in those types of situations, whether it's a committee or a decision-making process of any kind, is to use a non-voting decision observer. So in my case, you know, I'm, I'm an investment committee of one when it really comes down to it, but I do really want other people's input and decision. So I'll go out to a relatively small group of people, basically my board of advisors. These are other fund managers and investors that I really respect. Um, and I'll say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about. Here's what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think for it? What do you think about it? You know, what am I missing? And so what you're asking them to do is watch for, for things like question substitution, where instead of saying, is this a good company that's going to provide, you know, a good, safe place for your capital and an adequate return for the next few years? Maybe I'm saying, 
is this the best house in a bad neighborhood? Right. That's that's question substitution or or boy, I'm sitting on too much cash right now. I should go do something with it. Right. That's question substitution. Um, you're also asking them to, you know, pay a th- pay attention to things like base rates. Uh, Michael Mobison's credited in the book. He's got a new memo out today actually about base rates. It, it, it's just such an important topic and it doesn't get enough attention. Um, avoiding, you know, the inside view and the planning fallacy, right? Where you think every investment is perfect and and you know everything's gonna hit exactly exactly your hurdle rate and nothing's going to go wrong, right? I mean, that, that's pretty easy to, and all the various psychological biases, they walk through all of them. I mean, the book is really fantastic at capturing all of those. So it, it, one more interesting model to kind of imp, implement this, which, which I thought was great, um, was in the appendix, actually, they walked through kind of an explicit model where, and they've, they've talked about this psychological experiment in the past, where let's say that you knew of a three-year-old little girl who taught herself to read. Right. So she's obviously very bright and very precocious. And on the basis of that one piece of knowledge, that one fact, what would you estimate her high school or college GPA to be? And obviously that's pretty ridiculous, right? Because there's not a one-to-one correlation between learning how to read on your own at a very young age and getting really good grades later on in life. Um, you know, and so you ask yourself three things then. What's your intuitive guess, right? So you can go ahead and start out with what you think the GPA will look like, but then you go and you add two pieces to that and you look for what the mean is, right? So what is the actual average GPA among all students in whatever reference class you're estimating? And then you estimate the the diagnostic value of the information you have. So let's say that you think this girl's so bright, she's going to get a perfect GPA, right? Her GPA is going to be 4.0. Then you go looking for the mean and that's actually 3.8. And then you try to estimate along the curve of, of 0 to 1.0 how valuable the diagnostic information you have is. So if you knew, for example, all of her grades through high school, that would give you a perfect correlation, 1.0 confidence, because you'd know how to calculate her GPA, obviously. But in this case, like you know, you're probably thinking, boy, uh, you know, maybe 20%, 30%, 50% correlation between somebody who could read at a young age in preschool and high school or college grades, right? It's not, it's not one-to-one for sure. There's lots of other things that happen in life. And so what you do then is you take the intuitive guess and you take the difference between that and the mean or the average multiplied by your confidence, right? So I, I apply it to investments this way. So let's say that I think the compound average return I'm going to get, total shareholder return, compounding your growth, IRR, however you want to look at it, over a five-year period is going to be 15% a year. Let's say that's my best estimate of what this investment is going to earn. What do I think the average investment will earn over that period? And let's say it's 7%. And what's my confidence that I'm right, that this investment's going to double up the market and then some over that period? Let's say it's 60%, right? I mean, I think most fund managers would agree that if you're right 60% of the time in this business, you're doing really well. Uh, particularly with that kind of outperformance, you're doing really, really well. So what you do is you'd say 60, 60% times that 0.6 difference, that 6% difference, or sorry, that 8% difference between 15 and seven is five points. So what you should really be saying is the number that you should be expecting is closer to 12, right? Not 15, but 12, because you're kind of dragging yourself back down a little bit more towards the mean and the base rate and accounting for the fact that you have confidence, but you shouldn't have perfect confidence, right? So that's a really good way to kind of, you know, good decision hygiene, I think is is the way they would put it. And I thought that was really interesting. So anyway, I'll stop there with just my highest possible endorsement of this book. It's fantastic. Um, some of you listening to this will be getting a copy 
uh, around the holidays because it will definitely be my year-end holiday gift for anybody who's on that list. And uh, I'll open it up to you guys, Elliot and John, what what you think if you've had a chance to read it yet. If not, um, what other opportunities you would see along these lines to do a noise audit and improve your overall decision-making? Yeah, that's awesome. I haven't had the chance to read the book, but Thinking Fast and Slow, I read, you know, basically around when it came out and it's been formative and I'm shocked to hear. I didn't realize this, that baseball execs are finally taking notice. That's great. I'll send um, you the article. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. I wonder what catalyzed that because this book's been around a while. These uh, general managers have been learning the craft of be- you know better decision-making and judgment for a while now. I would have thought they read it. Hopefully they read Phil Tetlock as well uh, You know, on exactly. uh, super forecasting, but hey, you know, better late than never. Tetlock features pretty prominently in uh, in noise as well, by the way, his work. And it's kind of notable here with the phrase noise with Tetlock's work featuring prominently, you know, Nate Silver's book was Thinking Fast and Slow and it drew heavily on Tetlock as well. Uh, sorry, I mean, was, um, um, not, was, the was signal, the signal, the signal and, the and the noise. noise. God, right. Yeah, yep. brain fart there. The yep. signal and the noise, which I thought was just an awesome name and I really love the book. And obviously while he's, better known for his poll work these days, he started as a baseball data nerd. So, you know, it all comes full circle in that way. That's right. Yep. Um, You know, I love the example you gave of the blind blind valuation exercise with extra zeros, changing the output that people had. So holy cow, that's that's amazing. I mean, uh, you know, you never really know what forces are acting on yourself. And I'd say one of the most important, I think, things that everyone in investment needs to focus on is better self-awareness. And I think asking yourself explicit questions and forcing yourself to answer them and kind of journaling your answers as you go is really important. Um, When you speak about mindfulness and when you like some of the better things I'd read uh, upon becoming a parent encouraged doing certain exercises with kids. So there's one thing I've done with my uh, you know, our, our, my oldest is six years old since uh, she was able to converse every day. We'd ask her, you know, what was the happiest thing you experienced today? What was something that made you sad today? And what's something you're really looking forward to? And while this is something we've done with our little kids, I think a lot of adults and investors could benefit from asking these kinds of questions to force you to contextualize your awareness. And I think that's very important to kind of strip out the noise because it's both asking you to think about, you know, the external environment and to think inward about yourself. And so, you know, those sorts of things, I think, help you cut out noise and focus on signal and help you think about which external forces like you know, hey, the Islanders won last night, so I'm in a great mood. You know, buy everything; it's all going to the moon, or you know, the the opposite. Um, I, I think those are great, um, great exercises that you know, young and old alike could benefit from. And hopefully, some of you listening find a good parenting tip there. I think it's been really helpful. Yeah, there was another study kind of along the lines of the Islanders winning. I'll have to see if I can find it. And I don't think it was in the book, unless I missed it somewhere. But there was a study in London about fund managers uh, and the market. And there was a, a meaningful amount of up or out performance uh, on market days where it was sunny in London versus days where it was <laughs> cloudy or rainy. And so again, like I, you're right. Like it's amazing how easily we're all swayed by this stuff. Right. And I mean, I, I also play the game with students where I get them to anchor on 
you know, the last three digits of their phone number or something, right? And, and you can make it, it's demonstrably true amongst large groups where if you make them write down their last three digits of their phone number and then ask them to estimate how many miles it is from the earth to the moon, the people whose, whose phone number is a big digit, you know, like 997 or something versus 125, uh, they estimate a higher number, right? And if it's that easy, if, if it's that easy to fool yourself, like how easy is it to get something that's ridiculously complex and subjective, like an investment valuation, correct? Right. Right on. And that was going to be the next thing I said after like self-awareness and mindfulness. I think triangulation is really important, right? You never want to come at anything from just one angle. Like there's no one right way to approach things. So I think, you know, when you could triangulate and end up with answers that are in the same ballpark, that's far more powerful than when you just get one signal on something. Right. And it is hard because without that's why I mentioned the board of advisors thing and where I, I call if you know just a handful of people that I know well enough that they'll that they're smart and that they'll care what the answer is and they won't let me do something that's overly stupid. It's not foolproof by any stretch of the imagination, but particularly when you're not in an environment where a team is taking this seriously, like how do you test yourself? Right. So if you're the sole decision maker or if you're the head of the organization and you don't have people around you to tell you that you're making noisy decisions you're just going to keep walking right over the edge of the cliff, right? And, and because you're so easy to fool, it's so easy to fool yourself. Like, how do you stop from doing this? I mean, the self-awareness part of it's just crucial. Yeah, I um, think there are pros and cons to both sides, right? My one fear with those sorts of things is you're selecting, you know, whether it's building the team approach or a board approach, people who share a worldview with you. And I worry about the kind of, amplified effects decisions have when they're made in the context of a group structure um, when you all think alike. Like groupthink is a, is a very real risk. But then, you know, as Tetlock would say, there's that elitist segregation where many people in a group who are independently great thinkers come together, the outcome's better. So yeah, you know, I, I, I find that interesting. I don't quite have something like that, though. It makes me wonder. I do share ideas quite publicly and uh, receive feedback. And I do have a group of people who I really like and I trust. And I, you know, kind of as I'm working on things, say, hey, what do you think about this name? Give me all the pros and cons. And, you know, I, I, I do think that's helpful. I do think it's helpful to have peers who you could kind of, but what's most important check ego aside when the conversation starts and have very blunt, uh, honest conversations about what you do or don't think. Right. Yeah. I, it is interesting because like you said, I mean, group organizational decision-making environments, uh, are kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, again, you don't want to make decisions entirely on your own where your, your own blind spots aren't exposed because we all have them. But at the same time, like, you know, like I said, the investment committee environment can go off the rails very quickly. I'm sure we've all seen that in our careers for any number of reasons. And even more broadly, like where it's, it's, it is more scientific, right? Like actuarial science is a legit branch of mathematics or statistics. And so in these insurance underwriting examples that they used in the book, I mean, it wasn't exactly, exactly purely actuarial, but it was pretty close. And like the, the noise, the range of decisions given the exact same information from person to person or day to day or whatever was like astonishing, right? So that certainly didn't help. I mean, the only way you could do that would be to try to do it in a vacuum where people didn't know what each other's decisions were going to be and then triangulate them, like you said. Yep. 
Exactly. You know, that's pretty wild. Like we're vulnerable in a lot of different ways and that could come to bite us. Uh, You definitely got to worry about that. One thing I've done in my decision-making process is that I make the decision the day before I act on it. And I think that's really important. You know, people, since you're a kid, they say sleep on it. You know, when you sleep on things, they kind of stew a little differently and you might wake up with some doubts you didn't have the day before. But if you wake up really gung-ho and excited to follow through on the decision, it's probably more likely than not that you did the right stuff in advance to get to where you need to be. I don't know what it is, but some something about your subconscious where when you're heavily trained, you know, think about the, the intuitive system uh, from thinking fast and slow. I mean, there is some intuition that comes into play at the end of the process, perhaps, that maybe you're not realizing is acting on you while you sleep, but it is. Yep. No, that's a great point. That's why I mentioned, I think it's probably not a good idea. I mean, one thing I think you could do to improve your decision hygiene is to just make investment decisions, buy, sell decisions, trading decisions, whatever the specific thing is in your own world, away from the blinking distraction of quotes and market activity or news. Because like you said, if you make the decision the night before and then execute it, it gives you a much clearer frame of mind. It gives you two different, you know, data points or moods or whatever to kind of smooth out any reactionary type decision making. And I think it's it's really huge. And one last point I'll make that I should have made during my main part of the talk was that, you know, this is, they, they're very explicit in the book to say that this is not a push toward a hard and fast rules-based decision-making environment or where the algorithms are strict and the only decision-making body that exists. Now, they did say that you know, one of the most interesting aspects of some of their academic research is that in algorithmic decision-making organizations or bodies or, or individual decision-makers that use algorithms and rules-based decisions um, to act, it's, it's actually not that things are so much better in that world. It's just that they're way less noisy because obviously you can program anything to have bias and or noise in it, right? But the fact that you're doing something that removes that day-to-day like one plus one equals two one day and one plus one equals four the next day, like removing that is the main advantage of an algorithm or a decision-based environment. And say, but they, they admitted though, that like they wanted to make very clear that, you know, a yes, no, maybe environment is still important. Right. And so you can have certain more actuarial type decisions that are kind of quote unquote outsourced to algorithms, but it's way less possible in, you know, subjective or decision oriented fields. Right. And I would put investing very clearly in that world. Right. There's some kinds of investing, as we all know, that are done very well on a strictly algorithmic and rules based way. But there are other ways where it's a total disaster. And and so I think that's a really important distinction. And let's talk about a distinction in investing. Right. I think that's a great point. And then you could take it one step further. Like Mr. Market's job is to be the noise that's trying to get you to act in various ways. And it's trying to get you to do exactly what you shouldn't do. Or I should say, he is trying to get you to do what you shouldn't do in a given time, right? Um, And that's really hard. So what's investing without the noise? I mean, it's kind of private equity. You don't really have to look at stock prices. You just get to focus on the business and say, hey, like, you know, I, I can make my decisions in a vacuum and I don't really have to take feedback. You know, when you make an investment that day, you're effectively flipping a coin on what's going to happen over the next day, the next five days, the next week, the next month, stretch your timeline out. It takes a little while before what is effectively a coin flip turns into an actual 
like evidence-based, provable um, kind of answer to your initial hypothesis. (laughs) So I think that's really challenging. And that's one of the hardest things we all have to deal with in investing is understanding both, you know, how to take certain feedback from the market and synthesize it into your decisions when appropriate. And, you know, how to take uh, feedback um, and completely ignore it when it's inappropriate, when it's not right, and get yourself to the point where your decision's actually based on, you know, when when a hypothesis has true evidence that something's not right. Yeah, no, you're you're 100% correct. I would probably push back on the second order implications of that lack of near-term feedback or accountability in a private equity type setting. But to your point, which is more specific and narrower, you're 100% right, that the a, an a actively quoted public market is generating noise that can either be a source of opportunity for you because the noise creates an unnaturally, unrealistically widespread between the bid and the ask, or it can create noise that distracts you and talks you into doing something stupid. So that's a really important point. Yeah, that's, you know, I, I think in many ways, it's it's why uh, self-awareness and like the kind of emotional uh, intelligence of an investor is so important and so underrated compared to, um, you know, being extremely technically proficient at the numerical analysis. A lot of it comes down to whether you truly have conviction to see good ideas through or not. I think it's almost... You know, I, I've said this before. I know some great analysts who are terrible investors, and I think that's part of where that delta lies. Um, but you know, I, I don't think there's any one right answer for how to deal with it. A lot of it's about personality, finding an investment approach. Like you know, I've said many times that matches uh, your personality. Um, but I know, by and large, you know, us speaking here and the people listening are long-term oriented, and you can't just say like, "Hey." stocks down on day one. So therefore, you know, I need to re-underwrite my thesis. That's like one of my least favorite questions that, you know, I tend to get asked, like, what, what's your reaction when you're facing a drawdown in a stock? Like, God, you know, it's so different depending on the situation. Is it something, you know, that I just bought and it's down like, oh, well, or is it something that, you know, a year later, um, you know, underwater and I'm faced with the, the question of now I have enough evidence. Am, am I uh, having to re- visit this from a different angle, thinking first that I'm probably wrong or I very well might be. Um, Those are some of the most challenging questions we face. And, you know, I think in general, like when you're talking about signal versus noise, a lot of what this boils down to is we're not making, we're not trying to answer things with known answers. What we're trying to do is make decisions in an uncertain world. And we're trying to understand that there's a distribution of possible outcomes. And, you know, I I spoke about this a little, I think three weeks ago it was, um, where, you know, there are two types of errors. One where it's just, you know, we're in the wrong end of the distribution and therefore we're actually, um, our analysis was right. We approached the investment right. But hey, you know, not every investment is going to be a winner. The other is like, you know, we made a mistake in our analysis. And I forget which one's type one, type two, but you know, the other one is we make a mistake in our analysis and therefore we end up in a position that's wrong. And so even that after the fact analysis, there's so much noise. And so it all boils back to me to, to self-awareness, you know, and I know some great investors who swear by meditation. And I think there's something to it, though I don't think it has to be like explicit meditation. For me, it's kind of like biking or swimming where you get to shut off uh, certain parts of your brain and just focus on something a little different. 
Um, curious if you have uh, your guys' perspective on something like that. Yeah, I don't. I think going for a good walk is probably the best trick I have. I mean, uh, I, I agree. It's hugely important to get your head into a better space, whether it's through meditation or a good walk or something like that to, you know, not be so emotionally wrapped up in the, the noise causing stuff that swirls around us all day. Um, John, what about you? You have any good tricks along that line or along the decision hygiene context we were talking about earlier? Yeah. I mean, I like to go for a jog. I don't know that it really makes a huge difference in terms of my investment decisions, but it does clear my head and, and helps me just uh, kind of be uh, be healthier in general, I guess. And if you're healthy, you can think more clearly. Um, I, I do think, you know, some of that conviction that Elliot talked about, it um, we, we, we have to always think about that consciously and kind of keep um, that front and center because the market um, can convince us or try to convince us that we're wrong. And uh, Elliot, as you say, kind of always trying to uh, get us out of our positions. And then that's where it's important to really keep going back to that thesis and say, you know, I do have conviction in this. And if that's the case, I'm not going to let the market tell me what to do. Um, great insights, guys. Uh, and Phil, thank you for for bringing this book to our attention. I, I I look forward to reading it. I think you know noise is just so huge in our lives and in our work uh, today. I think probably more than ever, um, humans are faced with this issue. Uh, there's just so much data, so much daily news. Um, as in as an investor, you know, so many people pay attention to Fed statements. I think that's noise. Uh, for you know the vast majority of investors, that's really noise, but it doesn't get treated as noise. And I think um, the length of time span um, affects what qualifies as noise. So I think you know for someone, if you look at the a century of investing, I you'd say the Spanish flu back in 1918 to 1919 was basically noise. It was. You know, it didn't change the long-term trajectory of the market, and you know, by that um, standard, COVID, uh, the COVID crisis, is basically noise on a long enough time horizon. But it doesn't feel like noise when we're going through it. Um, so that's kind of interesting, and I think investors just often mistake noise for signal. There have been so many times when investors got panicked because they thought the world was as we, as we know it is ending the financial crisis of 2008 where the whole system was thought that it it would collapse uh covid last year and i think you know that's may, perhaps the reason why so many successful long-term investors don't really pay much attention to the macro uh, they stick to their knitting and don't let um all of that yeah, noise <laughs> affect uh, their decisions, and that tends to be uh, the right approach. Yeah, and to be clear, I think the way that noise is used in the signal in the noise is in the common phrase or the Nate Silver book or whatever, uh, and the way you're using it mostly there is really interesting. It's it's something meant to distract you from what really matters, right? So in your case, John, like you were saying, like the Spanish flu or COVID or whatever, 
if you're evaluating things over a 10-year horizon, there's a lot of noise embedded in what's happening this year, right? And when something so enormous like COVID is happening, that can generate a lot of noise. And it's related to what what Danny Kahneman and his co-authors are talking about here. But in this case, like they're using noise as a way to characterize decisions, like I said, that are widely scattered in an unpredictable way, which may be caused by the kind of noise we were just talking about. So it's kind of two sides of the same coin, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Elliot, you want to jump in? Yeah. One, it makes me think all this of like one specific instance or setup where it's like, you know, the market trying to act on us. So you're working on a name, you've been working on it for a couple months, it's gone nowhere during that time. And then suddenly it starts to rip higher, right? And so, you know, on the one hand, you might be like, oh man, I did all this work. I missed it. (laughs) Uh, It's gone. I'm going to go to the next thing. On the other hand, you might be like, oh man, I did all this work. It's going. I need to get in before it goes farther, right? FOMO acting on you. And it's like sitting there asking yourself, which one's acting on you? There are different situations where I think you're prone to each. You know, um, those kinds of examples I find to be some of the more challenging. And I think that's one of the areas where it's like really helpful to journal. Like what's what's like compelling me to act versus, versus before? Like, how do you guys deal with that? Because I know both, you know, you, you do deep work. You take the time. Uh, things don't stay static. So you're doing your analysis based on a point in time, but things change. You know, how, how, how do you think about something like that? So for me, um, I kind of like to have my thesis, have a sense of what something is worth, and then basically be willing to buy up to a certain percentage above the mar- current market price. And, you know, you're not going to like be super aggressive in the market buying up to that price and kind of driving up the market price unnecessarily. But at the same time, if it starts moving, you don't just say, oh, I missed it. Um, if it's still below your buy price and and if it starts moving like that, um, I want to, and I, you know, I'm building a position. I just tell myself I'm going to be about 20% of the daily volume until I have my position. And as long as I'm buying below my buy price. And that way, um, you're not really pushing up the price, but you're also not missing it because it started moving. And yeah, that tends to be a, a kind of a good uh, practical way of doing it, I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo all that. I don't have any better tricks than that. It's really hard. <laughs> Unfortunately, I mean, this it's such a hard topic and such a easy way to trip yourself up. I mean, beyond what John just said, which is probably the best practical advice. Yeah, I think you just have to read this sort of stuff and think it through yourself and come up with your own kind of process that incorporates all the things that you're susceptible to. And and doing it the way John just described it is as good as anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, that all makes sense. What I find interesting about that situation is how many different biases could be acting on you at once. You know, it could uh, lead to disinterest or more interest or you know, faster action or not inaction, you know? And uh, I feel like it's hard case by case to say exactly what uh, to do in advance, but, uh, you know, I appreciate the answers. And I think it's a helpful exercise in conceptualizing an instance where noise is very much a realistic business or investing challenge. Yeah. And I think you can also set a a rule for yourself 
that kind of balances out your natural inclination. I mean, my natural inclination is to, you know, not pay a penny more than it's trading now. And if I get it at that price, fine. Otherwise, I miss it. And so I had to come up with a rule that kind of softens that stance a bit. And that's what I did. If you, on the other hand, feel like, you know, you're more of a FOMO person and you're going to like chase it and and, and buy too aggressively, then you got to come up with a rule that kind of counterbalances that tendency. So I, I, I think everybody needs to come up with something that works uh, for themselves. Uh, but thank you so much, guys. Uh, for those listening, uh, the book is uh, Daniel Kahneman, Noise. Um, and uh, Phil, unless you have any final thoughts, um, ready to move on to Elliot's topic of the week. No, that, that's it. Cool. Elliot, over to you. All right. So, you know, I think in the beginning of this podcast, we talked a lot about the effects we thought COVID would have on various businesses and investing in general. And we've revisited some of these themes along the way. But today I wanted to specifically speak about um, one concept that I first heard, I think it was already three years ago, um, called CAC is the new rent. So customer acquisition cost is the new rent for online businesses. And, you know, I think it was from an Inc. or Wired article uh, in 2018 on the rise of DTC and direct-to-consumer. And the quote was attributed to Daniel Giulotti, hopefully I'm pronouncing that name right, of Comcast Ventures, that, you know, this idea that CAC is the new rent. So effectively speaking, a brick-and-mortar store to sell to customers has to pay rent for a physical presence that both houses their goods and gives people a place to go shop. And, you know, ideally for some of the better stores, they have a flagship location or in each town have a central location that's kind of a draw in and of itself or a presence in a mall that has a, you know, gravitational pull for consumers to end up there and find your store. In contrast, these online businesses have a much leaner cost structure in terms of their physical footprint, but must spend money somewhere to garner eyeballs and conversion to inevitably do business with them. So, you know, think about where we are today. You know, obviously, this isn't a concept from me. It's not new. Other people have spoken about it. But I think there are some interesting and profound consequences that have happened because of COVID. So early COVID, uh, purely online businesses, like they had a huge increase in business in general, right? A lot of people were explicitly searching for online businesses. So a lot of this new demand came without commensurate customer acquisition spend against it, right? It was organic search demand. Um, and so these companies had you know, truly great results, very high incremental margins. But now, today, sitting here a year plus from when the initial, uh, call it step change happened, you have, on the one hand, more resources to work with because these businesses are bigger. They spit off a lot of cash flow with good incremental margin last year. So you have a jump in scale, more resource to plow into acquiring new customers, uh, though you've tapped a larger pool of customers. So it's harder to reach N plus one versus uh, you know, N minus one customers. And you know, on the other hand, you also have challenging comps. So these companies want to maintain the level of business they did last year. And so in order to maintain valuation progress, like in order to maintain the valuation that they've earned over the last year, 
they kind of have to maintain the level of business. And the best way to do that is to spend more money. And so I think about this um, from a couple angles, but I, I really have this on my mind a lot reading a Tegas call uh, the other day that was about the online advertising space. And it started mainly with kind of channel checks on a couple companies and then evolved into this uh, question of what do you think about CPM trends? And I want to read a little bit of an excerpt. And, you know, this expert said, I think that CPMs could triple or quadruple over the next day, decade, because if you really think about it, uh, it's the cost uh, per thousand. That's a term. Now, imagine how well target ads will be in 10 year time. Uh, there will be some people saying, well, digital advertising is already uh, 50, 60, 65% of total ad spend. It can't grow that fast because today, all that growth is coming from print, TV, radio, outdoor, whatever. Uh, I'm a big believer that marketing as a percentage of GDP is going to grow very meaningfully. So if you look at the PLs of brick and mortar companies and say, what percentage of their revenue do they spend on marketing? It might've been say 3%, let's say three to 10% varying by industry, but you, you can say what potentially they spend on stores and sales and whatever, it's probably 10 to 30% or whatever. 10 to 20% is more likely. Going forward, a lot of that frontline staff goes and it mostly goes into marketing or tech. So if you really think of total advertising spending in the world, official figures typically put about $700 billion. In reality, it's more because there's a lot of supermarket shelf placement. Uh, this expert says he used to work at Coca-Cola. Half the budget went on basically paying Carrefour and Tesco and others to put Coca-Cola product on the end cap or put the coolers at checkout or paying for AMC to give exclusivity or whatever it might that might be. If you add that in, call it a trillion dollars right now of global advertising spend. And if it were then to triple as a percentage of GDP, that's $3 trillion, not accounting for GDP growth. And it's like mind-blowing. You know, That's the end of the quote. So sorry for the long excerpt, but I think it's quite helpful contextualizing just the extent to which both advertising spend today is understated. Uh, advertising spend uh, down the line has a tailwind, structural tailwind from the changing composition of business going from offline to online. And, you know, I think about this from another angle. So when we look at some of these online companies, you know, I ask myself this question, did this company really change behavior or did they capture behavior? And I think there's a really, really big difference. So one of the things with Amazon, I think there were a company who earlier than anyone else, you know, they, they made trust and low prices part of the experience of buying uh, online. And so even before there was uh, Amazon Prime, they changed behavior. And with Prime, they now earned commitment. So they changed behavior so much that people don't even price shop anymore. When I tell some people like, hey, you could have bought that item you bought on Amazon for 10 to 20% less on either Walmart or eBay. They're like, eh, Amazon, it's so easy, so easy. It's a starting point of search. Um, you know, personally, I think the friction of search, uh, the, the experience of searching through Google is much better than the experience of searching for a product through Amazon. And yet for the vast majority of people, you look at surveys, people actually start their product hunt on Amazon. So what did they do? They changed behavior. They didn't capture it. They didn't get people to buy, uh, through them. Uh, they, they kind of changed and, and reshaped how people think about buying altogether. And it's an entirely different beast. And so I think there's got to be this distinction at work here. So, you know, another angle is there are two kinds of DTC customers. There are those who sell a product and those who there are those who sell a subscription. And increasingly, you know, subscriptions include companies who sell 
products in subscription-like fashion. And so what they're trying to earn is repeat behavior where their customer acquisition spend all hits upfront and they're earning lifetime value. And we've spoken about this on this podcast in many different contexts, including with Peloton. And, you know, I've spoken about it with Roku, a company like Naked Wines. Uh, We've talked about this. Um, And then, you know, I'd contrast that. So you have these companies who are trying to build and earn repeat behavior where you think about customer acquisition spend upfront. You don't think about it with respect to contribution margin. First, if you think about a company like Carvana, who's trying to like get you to buy your car online, they're going to have to acquire you as a customer for each transaction because the transactions are farther between. Or perhaps a better example would have been an OTA because you know you travel fairly infrequently, maybe book two or three trips a year each time you have to be required as a customer. I think about something like Wayfair. I really struggle with this, where on the one hand, they have changed some behavior and made it easier to buy something with a click. Though you can shop around and see, you know, on other sites, price shop for fairly commoditized pieces of furniture and look where the price is better. And you effectively have to be reacquired as a customer. So, you know, when I think about a company like Wayfarer, I do think some portion of their uh, marketing spend is building lifetime value because they are getting some degree of customers who are committed to repeating their behavior at them with some degree of consistency over time. Um, though furniture expenses, furniture expenditures are a little more lumpy um, versus, you know, some portion of that spend is actually, you know, each time they have to get you, the furniture buyer, to think of them and make that decision to do business with them at that given time. And then, you know, when you think about these pure subscription businesses, so even those companies at maturity, when you think about what a steady state looks like, some degree of their expense every year has to go to this, you know, in rent-like fashion, customer acquisition spend. Because every single year, when you're a subscription business, you're churning some customers off and you have to acquire enough incremental new subscribers to replace the churn subscribers in order to be able to deliver on a steady state. So when you think about in that mature state, it sure does start to look like rent. It very much looks like, you know, the consistency and the stability of rent. So the beauty of it is you could kind of like ratchet and tone down the expense as you please, whereas rent, you're kind of like beholden and stuck to. So depending on how you pull other levers in your business, you could kind of scale up or scale down that expense. Anyway, pretty long diatribe and introduction to this idea, but, you know, was just curious what you guys think. I'd ask the question is, CAC, the new rent, in contrast to saying it is, because while, you know, with COVID, there's especially increasing evidence where uh, the role that customer acquisition spend is going to play, you know, for certain businesses in particular, if CPMs do triple as this expert thinks is possible, hey, you know, it's going to be really hard to acquire customers. You can only make the unit economics of some businesses work at a certain level. You know, at some point, it just doesn't work, especially those ones that have to keep reacquiring customers. And then, you know, um, with uh, a kind of, I don't know, maybe some kind of more omni-channel world, once we go back to a greater degree of normalcy post-COVID, perhaps, you know, buying uh, or Renting locations in premium real estate will once again take on some degree of value and online will have a little less significance in that sense. Um, so, you know, I asked this question because perhaps are we clouded by what we're seeing with COVID and 
you know, that's influencing how we think about it, or is this truly uh, where the world is heading? So open it up for you guys. Yeah, I guess I want to clarify. Do you think the implication was that the customer acquisition costs are tied directly to online advertising and that they would be almost an economic replacement for physical rent? Is that is that the idea? Yeah, effectively. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I could see that for sure. I mean, again, I think it's pretty well commonly accepted now that the future is reasonably likely to look like an omni-channel type of solution, right? Where even purely, formerly purely e-commerce companies are opening physical stores and, and that, you know, that it's probably optimal for most of those types of businesses to have a physical presence, at least in some limited capacity. So, but I, I, I guess I agree with the general premise, although from an investor standpoint and an economic standpoint, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, like a lot of things, right? I mean, to your point, I think one of the biggest mistakes I see right now is just the complete and utter overestimate that is a is attributed to almost every amount of churn that's out there. I guess it'd be underestimate of churn, like overestimating the life in the lifetime customer value value calculation. I mean, again, not to pick on it, but we've talked about this a lot that I think the company's estimate of, of lifetime uh, subscription at Peloton is like 13 something years, right? And to use the framework we just applied, right? I mean, you'd have to go out and say, all right, what's the average length of subscription to any, you know, any subscription products, so, you know, let's say Netflix and media, and then go a, a level deeper and say subscription to any sort of fitness business, including any sort of physical gym or anything like that. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find any that would be too much longer than 14, 15 years. And by saying it's 13 and years and change, you're saying really like my intuitive guess is that Peloton's going to hang on to every subscriber for 20 years, but I don't have a hundred percent confidence in that you know, the base rate's more like three or four, but I'm like, you know, 75% confident in my intuitive guess of 20 years. And, and I mean, if you own the stock, you need to believe at least that much, right? In some sense. So um, I do agree that customer acquisition costs and digital advertising uh, are, are related. They're certainly tied at the hip. I do agree that customer acquisition costs can transition away from having a pretty storefront window, right? And we've been going that direction for a long time and it seems likely to continue. Um, but yeah, in terms of like the long-term legs of like every customer that we acquired in COVID, I mean, to your point, Elliot, I, you know, I think people forget how often you have to reacquire customers in certain types of businesses, right? And, and I agree, the distinction you made of this is a business that has changed my behavior because they've earned my trust is absolutely enormous, right? I mean, it's not just Amazon Prime, it's Costco's prices. It's Southwest prices. I mean, Southwest has been able to avoid OTAs for 30 years because they had enough customers that trusted them to look there first or look there exclusively, right? I mean, there just aren't that many businesses that can change behavior that way, at least not many that I know of. Yeah. And that's the hardest answer to prove, right? Like you could say something five years down the line and see where incremental marketing spend went, but otherwise... You know, you're, you're, you have to truly understand the company qualitatively. And I started down this line of attack because, you know, for a while, uh, when I started my investment with Google, people were saying something to the effect of, geez, if Google, Facebook, and the other large advertisers all justify their valuations, there's just not enough marketing spend in the world to go around. But then you start thinking about, 
you know, add classifieds into marketing spend, uh, shelf space, and, you know, the growth that this expert sees and kind of rent being replaced with customer acquisition spend. And it's like, actually, you know, if that truly happens, the tailwind is pretty, pretty mighty. And the way to play this isn't necessarily the ones who are going to direct to consumer. It's kind of the uh, modern landlords, so to speak. So, you know, I think, I think they're interesting investment ramifications. And I do think it's quite hard to know uh, to what extent, you know, behavior is truly changed or not. Um, John, curious what you think about this whole, uh, is CAC the new rent? Yeah, it's an interesting thought. Um, you know, clearly it's a little different and, um, I think you can stretch the analogy. Uh, so, you know, if CAC is the new rent, then it might be also interesting to think about who owns the property that's being that you are renting and i think that's when you'd have to say it's companies like facebook like google like twitter like snapchat especially if you're a b2c business um so owning your well first of all those companies could be good investments because they own the property uh, that people are renting and uh secondly um you want to try to own your own channels as much as possible i think that's why so many customer acquisition funnels try to have email as a big component of it, getting people to join your email list because you control that and uh, you you own that. And it's uh, you know not something that can be taken away or that you have to pay a lot of money for to maintain. And it's also why word of mouth is so valuable. I, I, I recall um, an article by David Sachs, the uh, venture capitalist, about kind of creating word of mouth and how that's so important in that uh, equation um, where I think you had a lot of those scooter company startups, but was it Bird that was the most successful because they kind of had something that looked a bit weird and people talked about it because of how it looked and uh, that created that word of mouth and lowered their uh, CAC. Um, so, you know, organic traffic is super important, um, online to me, you know, I don't know if I would really call it the new rent because to me, maybe rent would, could apply more to things like your technology infrastructure, your, uh, data warehouses, your server infrastructure or whatever you're paying for that, that that's kind of a little bit more of a cleaner analogy perhaps to like a physical store and maybe in that uh sense um cac would be what like retailers would call promotional activity or couponing or something like that maybe that's um a little bit comparable to how you bring in your customers online uh, as well so yeah but i definitely agree elliot that uh, those companies that change behavior rather than just capture behavior are super interesting. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Airbnb. I think Airbnb changed the behavior for me quite a bit. And there are, you know, many examples. Yeah, I would add to, uh, to further that point. I mean, again, that's why I clarified about digital advertising, because if, if the question were reframed, digital advertising CAC is the new rent CAC. I would agree with that 
you know, quite a bit. I think digital advertising will replace a good chunk of physical rent. I don't know whether it's a fifth or two thirds or somewhere in between, but it's going to be some material chunk of physical rent in a consumer facing or retail oriented business could be replaced by online advertising. And I'm sure some, if you were to go back to 30 years ago, some big chunk of it already has. So that I would totally agree with, but I just echo what John said, which is that, you know, even a business like Amazon, I mean, they used to do almost zero advertising, right? I would guess that for the first 15 or 20 years, Amazon, I mean, you see a lot of advertising from Amazon now, but like they literally did almost none while they were building Amazon. It was all word of mouth. So I think the best customer, the best customer acquisition strategy and the best customer acquisition costs are in things where you're just reinvesting and making the business better so that people will talk about it and do your advertising and customer acquisition for you, right? I mean, what's better than having your own customers acquire more customers? Well, that's a great point. Uh, you know, it's truly the network effects at work, right? Where uh, having more customers uh, increases the value to the N plus one customer. Um, and, and, you know, you don't exactly think of Amazon as a network effect business, but it brought on more suppliers each time they did that uh, once they were effectively a marketplace. Um, maybe that's a little bit of a stretch analogy, but network effect business is what you're getting at with these kind of word of mouth, member get member sort of setups. And, you know, John, you made a really interesting point with email too, because I think that's an awesome one. Um, great channel where you effectively have no cost where what's put in is what, uh, where, where, where the input cost is, you know, your creativity and your ability to generate conversion out of sending an email. Um, I do think I'd caveat some of Amazon's customer acquisition was discounted products. So they just, instead of treating it as marketing expense, gave you you know, a dollar for 85 cents several times along the way. And perhaps that's one more advertising pool we should think of as kind of fungible at some point, which may shift and manifest in different ways. Um, but yeah, you know, I remember uh, reading some of the uh, after the fact articles about PayPal's early growth hacks about having, you know, every referral gives you $10 for each friend you bring in um, and how much that costs and how, you know, it's entirely unprovable whether that would ever manifest in some kind of value. But that is still CAC, right? It just, you know, not necessarily going to flow through the uh, walled gardens or other uh, advertising channels. Um, but yeah, all interesting points. And I, you know, tend, tend to agree with you guys. I think there's a lot of nuance, right? You hold two competing ideas with some of these concepts where there's the on the one hand and on the other hand, um, and, you know, a great example with Airbnb and a company who, who truly changed behavior. Uh, you could do something entirely new through them. And I think, you know, to that extent, uh, a lot of these companies that change behavior become like a cognitive referent where their name gets associated with exactly what they get you to do. Um, so those are especially interesting. And those companies tend to have much lower uh, customer acquisition costs because of it. Um, though that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And interestingly, you know, Amazon's become a very large advertising platform in its own right. So some of what had been spent on, uh, you know, aisle space is now getting spent on Amazon. Uh, Modest Proposal has this great series of tweets about how every internet business eventually becomes an ad advertising business, no matter uh, where they started. And that certainly, I mean, that might be one of the more interesting questions. Try to find examples of company who, who doesn't, who didn't, or or won't, or or hasn't gotten into advertising in some way, 
as an online platform. Uh, I don't know. Could hardly think of too many examples of of those that are out there. Um, curious if any come to mind right away for you guys. Uh, not really. Uh, but Elliot, if I may, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about customer acquisition costs within your investment process and kind of how it figures into the uh, analysis you do. I think that might be interesting to folks listening. Sure. Yeah. You know, on some of these subscription-like businesses, I just definitely focus on, um, you know, I'll give you a specific example with Naked Wines for for one. When they acquire a new customer, there are two ways that they're acquiring that customer uh, with expenditures. Though one of them is only contra revenue. And I think that's important, right? So what they're doing is first, they have a form of marketing, whether it be with flyer inserts or with uh, you know online advertising that brings you to their site. So that's an explicit expense and you have to expense that against your LTV ex- expectation. And the other is they are discounting the product on the first order, right? So if you're going to look at LTV to CAC and just uh, expense like the explicit marketing expense, you're going to understate the actual cost to acquire a customer because you have to add in the impact of the contra revenue, the extent of the discount that they're giving new customers. Um, so I think that's really important. And, you know, that's physical goods. It's a little different than some purely online companies, but, you know, I, I want to make sure that I capture every single one of the costs when I'm thinking about customer acquisition spend. On the other hand, you have a company like Twitter who's hardly spent any advertising expense in building up their user base over time. Uh, they have a pretty, I'd say, uh, hefty uh, sales and marketing line, but that's predominantly really services that they give to advertisers, like the heavy lift that it takes for advertisers to spend money on the platform. It's not about bringing in the next user. And so, you know, I think those are pretty interesting. You don't necessarily have to treat it the same way and you don't necessarily have to think about, um, you know, the customer, the LTV to CAC with the user so much as focusing purely on their ability to retain users and how much each incremental one is worth and you know how many users it takes to justify today's market cap with a decent uh, margin structure. So I think those are the two ends of the spectrum that I tend to deal with, but I think it's you know basically in some ways the most critical input because from there is you know these companies by and large when you want to measure their ROIC you don't really have much by way of tangible assets, but you do have to be able to measure uh, both to understand the returns the business actually gets on its capital allocation and to understand whether management is good or not. Uh, you have to get a clean read on ROIC and, and, and have a sense of what that is. And you know, if you don't take the right approach to customer acquisition cost, you might end up pretty wide of the actual mark on where things can go. Um, so was, was that what you were looking for, John? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's really helpful. Thanks. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think it's really, uh, definitely one of the more fun parts of working on a business, trying to piece this all together, uh, trying to understand exactly what does and does not count. Um, and you know, I mean, I'm pretty involved in some of the advertising platforms too. So I try to think a lot in terms of, 
what share could end up there. I think one interesting one I've been toying with lately is, you know, obviously I've expressed my enthusiasm for Twitter and going down the uh, super follows or, you know, the review subscription newsletter side of things. And, you know, the Substack business model is really interesting to me in general. Um, I tend to think, you know, while we're in the real infancy, infancy of the paid newsletter space, I know some investment people are going to say paid newsletters have been around for a generation. Let's leave that aside. By and large, you know, there's a lot of blue sky and we don't really know what the true kind of like steady state market size is of the paid newsletter industry. And I think eventually a good chunk of that, um, uh, of the gross revenue that's going to go to newsletter uh, writers is going to return to some of the platforms in the form of customer acquisition spend. Like it's very easy in the early stages when they're early adopters to bring people on with like good tweets and good uh, free writing in the freemium business model, right? So free in freemium is one portion of customer acquisition costs. You actually have to take some time and there's a cost that goes into that. Um, but by and large, you know, at some point, 10 to 15% of that gross revenue, I do think, could end up back on the platform as customer acquisition spend to maintain levels of subscribers, to maintain, you know, as you scale as a newsletter writer, you're going to add in expenses and all that. So, you know, I've been trying to think this through from all angles, whether it be from the companies themselves or the opportunity in advertising platforms. Uh, and I find some of these questions to be really interesting and I'm eager to see you know, talk about signal and noise. I'm eager to see how some of these hypotheses I have play out over time. Uh, who knows? For sure, for sure. Well, uh, fascinating subject. Uh, that on that note, uh, thank you so much, guys, uh, to both of you for the discussion this week. It was terrific, and thanks everyone for listening as well. Talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.